Good afternoon. You know, we could just eliminate all of the um, precepts except one. I vow to avoid sensual misconduct. I mean, that one, that third precept, just covers everything. You know, because our sensual misconduct is relying uh, totally on the information coming in through the sense gates for uh, how we should think, understand, and respond to people and situations. So that's the information that comes in through, you know, uh, uh, our eyes like what we see, what we hear, what we taste, what we touch, what we smell, what we think. We get that under control, we have the whole thing. So if, if you know, like too many rules, too many things to remember, too much Dharma, just go with that. And, and that's a full, it's a full-time job. But the thing is, you know, we, we, he says we have misunderstood and so he says, I teach suffering and the end of suffering. There's a whole lot of things I could teach. There's a whole lot of things I know. He said, but if you, and, and, and he did share a lot of things, you know, he, um, he taught, uh, he, he only used those other teachings to point us to some misunderstanding about the nature of reality that caused us to experience suffering in the present moment. He said, but you can forget about all of that other stuff. Don't make a doctrine about that. Don't build a, a you know, uh, don't build an institution around this. Don't make this into a dogma. Just think of it all as what is causing me to suffer right now. And in my trying to uproot or, or throw off that suffering, how do I cause others to suffer? He said, that's all we have to consider in every moment. I was um, troubled by uh, something, and I was trying to find the right way to, like, to really um, understand it, to, to really see it. And so Panyadeep and I were talking, and he said something that was uh, so simple you know, to me, and when when he reminded me of this, it made all of the 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 all of the complexity fell away. You know, he said, "Do good, don't do evil, purify your mind." That's it. You know, that's what the Buddha said: "Do good, don't do evil, purify your mind." And it took this whole complicated, you know. Um, situation and it just broke it down very very simply so I got an email from one of my Dhammacharya students last night and we had just had a, a long conference call a long talk and then I think a couple of weeks before that we just had a long talk you know and now she was calling for um, another one and and she said, you know, I sometimes get stuck in the sadness and the fear of impermanence. And yet there's a part of me that really does understand um, how the pain of impermanence is also the joy of everything right now. It feels like a tug of war, though, you know, between fear and disillusionment on one side and freedom and joy on the other. And this was very much like the question from the week before, 
and very much like the question from a couple of weeks before that. So I wrote her back and I said, um, you know, sometimes we just have to sit with ourselves to go further. That's it. We just have to sit with ourselves to go further. That's why I like the Thursday Dharma contemplation, because it gives us an opportunity to sit with ourselves. We sit with ourselves individually, but we're sitting together. And, um, and we're asked to read a passage, and from that passage then uh, we uh, share a particular word that's impressing us, that, that uh, is jumping out at us. Like we may not know why, but suddenly that word like just jumps off the page. That's, it's taking me right there, it's pointing me to that. And then someone else will have a different word, and someone else have a different word. But when they have that word, like suddenly that became my word. That one, that word is jumping out at me now. So sometimes there's two or three or four or five words, and we just call the word out. And then we go back and we look for a phrase that's jumping out. So that word now is put into context. And then we share the phrase. And sometimes when I hear someone's phrase, that gives me a deeper understanding of it. I see a side of them that I hadn't seen before. One maybe that they had not felt safe enough to share, you know. I, uh, I understand them differently when they're being very open and, um, and honest and, and in a safe non, nobody's accusing anybody of anything. It's just I'm looking and saying, oh, I'm stuck right there. Oh, that gives me a sense of relief right there but it lets me know something about the person, maybe what they're struggling with that I couldn't see because I was only seeing that whatever they were struggling with is bothering me, you know? And so that's how we are. We're sitting at the seat of our world. How could it be otherwise? When every bit of information that comes in through the sense gates tells us that this is the world and this is me. And I have to watch very carefully about what is coming to me, how it will affect me, how it will touch me, how it will influence me, how it might hurt me, how it might serve me, how it might save me. There's always this information pointing me to me. I mean, like you're in the equation too, you know, because I have to live with you or be with you, you know, uh, but really, I'm the one that I'm focusing on. And even when we think we're focusing on others, it is like what I am giving you, what I am offering, what I am doing, what I, it's still all about me. And this is the natural uh, thinking of the ordinary run-of-the-mill, untaught man, man, woman, they. 
And so he says, because of this, we're in a state of constant, not only confusion, but a kind of, of depression. You know, that which is our uh, true and most authentic nature cannot rise to the surface because we're pressed down on every hand by the voices of the world that speak to us when the internal base, I, meets the external base. It sees something. Consciousness arises, and the three of those things make contact. And with contact comes a feeling. The feeling can be pleasant, it can be unpleasant, or it can be like really neither pleasant nor unpleasant. And with the feeling, with the feeling, with the feeling comes a craving or a clinging for more of it. If it makes us feel good, if I feel useful, if I feel valuable, if I feel loved, if I feel cherished, if I feel strong, if I feel knowledgeable, if I, you know, if I feel, comes this pleasant feeling. I like it. I want more of it. I want it to stay. I do more whatever I did that produced that, that brought me that, that made you relate to me in that way. And then if it's an unpleasant feeling, I have aversion to it. I don't like it. I don't want it, you know. I try to push it away. Makes me feel sad. I don't want it. You know. If I can't push it away or can't fast enough, I get angry. I find all the reasons why this should not be here. I point out all the things that's wrong with it. I use uh, just, I use some wonderful words like, um, uh, what is um, reasonable? What is a reasonable attitude or a reasonable uh, code of conduct? What is, you know, uh, responsible, you know, responsibility for ourselves? Yes, we have to take responsibility for ourselves. The operative word there is ourselves. It's not about enforcing or, or, or making anyone else take responsibility for themselves. It's about us taking responsibility for ourselves. We can take responsibility when we like what's going on. We want to like take responsibility. But when we don't like what's going on, oh, we don't want to take responsibility. We want you to take responsibility. That's a natural way. You see, and often we don't see it. We don't recognize it because the world does not teach us that. The sages teach us that. So we have a whole new way of, of, of being in the world that we need to master if we want to have peace in every situation, whether things are going the way we want them to go or whether they are not. We call it spiritual maturity. 
but actually it's our lessons in how to live a successful life, how to live a peaceful life, how to live a harmless life, and how to overcome the vicissitudes that are inherent in life. There's no way, no how, are we going to be able to get away from praise, blame, loss, shame, pleasure, pain, fame, gain, that's it. That's the air that we breathe. And when we're no longer breathing that, we're no longer here. So, we have to learn how to be in all of these situations. And the Buddha gives different kinds of training for people at different stages of the path. For one stage, it might be run like your hair is on fire, you know? It might be that's what you need because you don't have what it takes to hold yourself stable right now. You need to leave that environment. Now, I'm my mother's child. I've worked a long time at becoming the Buddha's daughter. But my mother would say, like I would call her when I have a little problem with, with my husband or something, she said, has he met Mr. Frying Pan? <laughs> she said, all you got to do is introduce him one time, just one time. <laughs> so I had some unlearning to do on my journey. <laughs> you know, the Buddha always spoke in like, he used metaphors and similes and parables. He did that. He used a very ordinary vernacular so that people would understand what he meant. And I was talking with someone, and she said, "We were so much like uh, you to come and uh, give a retreat for us, Panyavati." And, and they were in Germany. She said, "But the problem is." then most of the Germans won't understand what you're talking about because I, I speak in a very colloquial manner. You know, so if I talk about more bang for the buck, they're like, what is that? You know, I mean, it won't get the point. But so the Buddha spoke to people, you know, in a way that they would get the point according to what was the, you know, the, the way they spoke in that area. And with his wisdom, he would know how to pull these things to pull these things together. So I'm just speaking to you right now where we where we live, okay? Uh, and 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 I use these analogies to show that this is not some kind of highfalutin special kind of place and special kind, but it's just right where we live. The Dharma is right where we live. It's not off in the forest. It's not in the synagogue. It's not in the temple. It is where I live moment to moment. There is the Dharma. And once I realize that, I, I, I come to the conclusion that there's nowhere to run and there's nowhere to hide. Can't run from ourselves. He said, when one sees the Dharma, they see the Buddha, the awakened mind. He said, and when one knows themselves, they know the Dharma. 
So this is all about coming to know oneself. Isn't that so good that I don't have to know you? Isn't that so good? All I have to do is know myself. But that's like a, a triple-time gig. It's more than a full-time job. It's a double-time, triple-time at least. Just knowing myself. What is happening in my heart, in my mind, right here, right now, at this moment? I might think I'm handling business, but maybe I'm really just protecting myself from the feeling I felt when my sister did something to me when I was 10. You know, it felt a lot like this situation. My mind was right here in the moment until you said that word, and then there it was. My mind flipped back to I'm always the one who has to be the responsible one. You know, why can't you do your work? I mean, it's, that's how our mind goes. And because we think it's solid, concrete, and fixed, we pay attention to it. But he said it's not. He said, he said, like, we're more like a, a, a fire. I mean, you see the fire. The fire looks very concrete. Actually, if you stick your hand in it, you can feel the burn. But yet, it's not, I mean, you can't grab it like this. You can't, it's elusive in a certain way. Although it has a, an appearance of being very fixed and very concrete. And so, who we call us, ourselves, me, is just some thoughts and memories about the past and some ideas and imagination about the future. That's it. Who I was yesterday or an hour ago and what I'll be five minutes from now. And that becomes this fixed sense of identity. So when we're in the present moment between what was and what will be, we don't know what to do with that present moment. It's only after something has happened that I can say that's who I was. It's only when I'm dreaming about what I want to do or want to be in the future that I can say that's who I am. You know, I, I am that I'm, I'm, I'm holding it, I'm embracing it, you know, and I'm working towards it. So we have this idea, this imagination about who I will be in the future and who I was in the past. And so We cannot figure what is happening in the present moment. So he says, time out. Past is gone, which causes our sadness, our sorrow. Future has not come, which causes our anxiety and our fear. We have to learn how to be in the present moment. And when we can, then all confusion is dispelled. So he's giving us the way, the path of how to cut through confusion. There's a poem that I like. It's by Jack Gilbert. And, you know, he didn't, uh, he wasn't well known until he died. You know, it's like that sometimes. You know, as I always say, I want to give a person their flowers while I can still smell them. 
But Jack Gilbert wrote a, a, a poem, and I, I, uh, I forget the name of the poem, but the words go like this. A heart wanders lost in the dark woods. Our dream wrestles in the castles of doubt. But there's music in us. And I added, listen, can't you hear it? He said, hope is pushed down, but the angel flies up again, taking us with her. And I added, quickly, choose to grasp her hand. And he said, the summer mornings begin inch by inch while we are asleep and walk with us later in the day as long-legged beauty through dirty streets. And I added, yet I remember only what is sweet. He said, it is no surprise that danger and suffering surrounds us. <laughs> what astonishes us is the singing. And I added, duh. You know? We know the horses are there in the dark meadow because we can smell them, can hear them breathing. And I added, even in the darkness, then we can still see. So why run? Our spirit persists like a man struggling through the frozen valley who suddenly smells flowers and realizes the snow is melting. Where? Out of sight, on top of the mountain. And yet he knows that spring has begun. And I added to everything, there is a time and a season we cannot prevent the passage even of struggle. So why waste effort struggling? Impermanence is a lovely thing if we gaze upon it rightly. And so I sent that to her. And I said, that's our talk for the day. You meditate on that. But I like also the way the Buddha approaches. This poet gave a balm for that time when you're not measuring up, for when you're not meeting your expectation, when you're feeling, uh, uh, when you're having a down moment, when uh, there is an unpleasant feeling uh, that's causing some sadness, or some sense of inadequacy, a, a troubling inside. And he said that even when that's going on, the wheel of life is still moving. And unless you stick something in the clog to stop it, morning follows the darkest hour. Wait for it. Wait for it. Wait for it. And so he encourages us in that way. 
But I like what the Buddha said because, you know, if I get the right instruction, the right training, then I'll know how to be in the present moment that I don't have to wait for the morning to come. The dawn of the morning can be in any moment. And that's the purpose of our practice. The Buddha said, because of the law of impermanence, everything in the phenomenal world is inconstant. It's in a state of flux. So the only real peace must be the resolve and the acceptance of this flux. In other words, the flux is there. It's not like we pretend it's not there. We know that it's there. So we're not perplexed when it arises. He said suffering should be understood. The, it's difficult sometimes when you translate a word. I mean, uh, trying to capture the full essence of the word. And that word is dukkha should be understood. And maybe we should just leave it as dukkha. Because dukkha we can't it totally define, you know. But it is an unsatisfactoriness. It's the, the changeability of things. It's the insecurity of the next moment. It is a, it's everything that causes uh, any type of unease or confusion to arise in us. And he says, this is a part of this world. It goes with this territory, sorry, you know. And he says that, but whatever the present moment dukkha is that's arising, that should be understood. It's not like that something's happening or what's happening. I need to be present with myself to detect, to clearly recognize the shift that's changing, that's taking place in me right at this moment. What's rising up and what's causing unrest in me? And he said, you have to sit with that. He said, that should be understood. And he said, the origin of it, whatever's causing it, that should be abandoned. And he said, the cessation then, the stilling of it, should be realized. And the way leading to the cessation of it should be developed. So he talks about understanding, he talks about abandoning, he talks about the abandoning brings about a realizing, and there's a way to do this, and it's through cultivation of oneself, development. Now I'm getting somewhere, you know. I'm not just 
wait for it, wait for it, waiting for the dawn to come that erases the darkness. I'm being proactive in this process. You know, suddenly I'm feeling a sense of control that's not like a, like a, like a child mentality trying to run. Oh, I won't go there. There's a growing up process in this, that the control comes in uh, a mannered and disciplined uh, inner life and quality so that I'm not like throwing a tantrum when things don't go my way. that I'm not constantly stuck and overtaken by my thoughts of what I don't like. You know, I'm not constantly looking at what is not present. So awareness is sticking with what is present and not being distraught over what is not here. And when we're able to be there with that, whether we like it or whether we don't like it, a kind of confidence begins to emerge in us. That what I call maturity may be a better word for that, is confidence. And, and a capacity to penetrate the present moment. and understand it all together. And so he says that that the way I see the world in my mind, that is my reality. That's real for me. So you know that goes for the other as well, right? The way they see the world in their mind, that's reality. For them. So you have a reality and I have a reality. And all our troubles come when our two realities bump up against one another, when they clash. And he said, What do we do then? He said, Put your reality, not the other person's, put your reality up against the encouragement and the instruction and the teaching of those that you consider wise and try to emulate that. Now, if you don't consider them wise, don't follow the advice. If you say you do, try to follow the advice. Even when you're screaming inside, but you know you can't trust your own. So he he helps us to find a, a uh, a humility and a willingness to follow one that we think is wise. And there is no lack 
of wisdom in the human experience and history. You can take the teachings of any great sage and you can find a million things that you could use to uproot your suffering. Not just Sakyamuni, who we call the Buddha, the awakened one, but many awakened ones. He's not the only one. Anything that's the only, there's no hope for us, right? <laughs> so, so he, he gives us a specific way to look at things. And we have to really come over to that side of looking to be able to employ this. That's what I mean. No. You know, we need to uproot, get rid of, stop using, never say again the word trigger. Because trigger has given us permission and an excuse even for why we're experiencing what we're experiencing, what we're experiencing, because I got triggered. What you said triggered me. What you did triggered me. Trigger, trigger, trigger. We need to stop using it because it has actually become a crutch, a permission for us that does not serve us. The Buddha leaves us with no trigger. He said, mind made are we. Mind is chief. Whatever we think and ponder on, that becomes the inclination of our mind. So whatever I'm thinking, whether it's good or whether it's dastardly, it's because I have thought such thoughts in the past about, if not about you, about somebody else, and I'm continuing to lean my mind in that direction, and it continues to produce more thoughts like that. And he said that uh, that becomes then the inclination of our mind. That's where our mind runs constantly. And so he gave us some instructions on how to think. And as I'm closing, I'd like to share those with you today. He gave us instructions not only on how to think, but on how to talk. When we do the 10 of virtues, I vow to avoid killing living things, taking what is not given, sensual misconduct, then it goes false speech, harsh speech, malicious speech, gossip. I mean, half of the 10 have to do with our mouth because it gets us into so much trouble and it causes so much trouble others. But this was his instruction to us. He said in uh, the Samyutta Nikaya number 56, do not dwell on unwholesome thoughts. Now, it doesn't get any simpler than that. Do not dwell on unwholesome thoughts. Why? Because the mind is going to become fixed and continually lean into more and more and more unwholesomeness. So if I'm thinking, you know, there's a song, uh, I can't think of, who's the guy who wore the big glasses, yellow brick, wrote the, uh, yeah, yeah. 
and he had a song, and I used to love this song. And he said, put them on, put on those sad songs, because sad songs say so much. And I was always losing a boyfriend or something, you know, and I go right back to that that song, and I like just drown in my misery. Put them on, put on those sad songs, because sad songs say so much. And I said, this is so stupid. And I stopped. And I remember that when uh, my uh, partner was leaving me, he later became my husband and we were married for 28 years, but it was got a little testy before the I do date actually came about. And he broke up with me. Oh, I was so sad. And I was sad for about four or five days. <laughs> But I didn't like the way it felt, you know? I mean, you know, you can't get out of bed. You can't eat. You can't sleep. You, you're crying. And, you know, and after a few days, this was just too much. You know, I had been practicing. I was, a, I was a, you know, I was a deep Christian practitioner. I had some weapons of, of spiritual warfare. I had some tools, but I couldn't use them in that moment. You know, because I didn't know about mind is chief and whatever you think and ponder on becomes the inclination of your mind. I'm like, why, God? I'm like, bring them back. I'm like, you know, saying prayers like no Venus do. I'm, you know, because I didn't understand this. And uh, so I opened up the Bible one day and I read, it said, uh, weeping, weeping endures for a night. But joy comes in the morning. I said, is that true? I believe that that's true. And I've been weeping for four nights. I need to line up with the word. And so what I did that night is I took his picture off the wall. It's like hanging right across from my my bed. You know, I could just look at him and weep and weep. I took that picture off the wall. I put it on the pillow right beside me. I hugged that picture all night. I got up in the morning and threw that thing in the trash. <laughs> and I was through with it. But you see, I had to make that decision. You know, I'm calling my friends and they giving me some advice. You want us to go beat them up? I'm calling other friends and they're giving me some advice. You want me to go talk to them? I'm calling my, oh girl, let me hook you up with somebody else. I'm talking, you know, everybody had some advice. But you see, I had to decide what I was going to do with that. And although I didn't do what some of my friends wanted, one wanted me to kick him to the curb, one wanted me to do this, one wanted me to, you know, go, girl, you better go back and get that man. Somebody, you know, like, but I did what I wanted to do. I decide. In every moment when we think we don't have a choice, we are and so he said, don't dwell on the wholesome thought. Don't dwell on disputatious thoughts. Don't reflect in unwholesome ways. 
Don't dwell in pointless talk and rambling chit-chat. Don't talk about becoming this or that. Don't talk about those who have departed or days gone by. He said, for what reason or why not? He said, because such thoughts and such talk are unbeneficial, irrelevant to the fundamentals of living a life of peace, which he calls the holy and the harmless life. And they do not lead to dispassion. They arouse more passion. They do not lead to cessation. They stir up stuff. They do not lead to peace. They do not lead to direct knowledge, seeing and knowing. They do not lead to enlightenment. They do not lead to nibbana. He said, when you think, when you talk, you should think or talk about this. This that is rising up is dukkha. This is the origination of dukkha. This is the cessation of dukkha. This is the way leading to the cessation of dukkha. For, for what reason? Because such thought and such talk are beneficial. They are relevant to the fundamentals of the holy life. And they do lead to dispassion, putting out the fire. They do lead to cessation. They lead to peace. They lead to direct understanding. They lead to enlightenment. They lead to nibbana. If we're going to exert ourselves, he said, an exertion should be made to understand this, that there is a place that we can abide peaceful, useful, content, and engaged in this life, in this world. But it takes a decision to cultivate a mannered, well-mannered inner life of quality and integrity. That is the unconditional love that can be offered to oneself and to others. May you be well and happy and peaceful. May no harm come to you and no danger. May you always be able to meet the inevitable difficulties of life. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.